This is a remarkable story because it's a story about a man who is caught in the middle of two worlds. It's a story of a man who wants to be faithful to his calling to God and faithful to his society as part of God's people of Israel and, and um, the first century Jewish life. But he also loves Mary and he wants to marry her. He wants to be with her and he wants to take her as her, his wife. And so he's caught in this intermediate place where he wants to do what's right by God and wants to do what's right by his new wife, but he cannot do those things. Children are an intrusion. They change our lives in some way. And sometimes children are expected and sometimes they're unexpected. But life is changed because of their presence. Adults like a world that is fixed. We like a world that is secure and safe from disruption. We don't like things to be moved that much. We don't like the change that comes from those intrusions. And some intrusions are bigger. Some are more unexpected than others. Some are more joyful than others. And some are met with fear and trepidation and anxiety. And what are we going to do next. Now the text calls Joseph a righteous man, and we don't exactly know what that means except that he was a God-fearing man, that he participated in Jewish life, and that he called God his Lord. We don't think that he was a leader in the church, in the, in the temple, but he participated in that society. He was part of the Jewish society and part of that line. And then the unexpected thing happens. Mary becomes pregnant, or she's found to be pregnant in some way. We don't know if Mary found out first. We don't know if Joseph found out through Mary or how that happens. This part of the story does not tell us. But she is found to be pregnant somehow. And this pregnancy would violate every single social conven uh, convection, convention and ethics for an unmarried woman at the time. Even nowadays, where it's kind of becoming a little more commonplace, we still look at that and think, wow, what is going on there that that is the case? This is an ethical dilemma for Joseph. This is a place where he doesn't know where to go next. And I think it's a little bit of an understanding of how Jewish marriage worked in the first century. He's engaged to marry, but they are not yet wed. And we can understand sort of that part of it. But it's not the romantic sort of engagement thing that we think of in our modern culture. Um, it's really the opposite of romantic, actually. There was no get down on your knee and propose. There was no uh, let's start planning our life together. This was a business decision by Joseph. The engagement party consisted of Joseph going to Mary's parents' house signing a marriage contract, and then paying her parents the bride's price. That was the end of the business contract. And when you sign that and the parents agree to the price, Mary is now property of Joseph. But until the wedding ceremony took place, until the, the marriage was actually um, legitimized, 
Mary would continue to live with her parents for a couple of months or even in some cases a couple of years while Joseph got a house prepared, while he got a life situated, while he got a job, while he had money and funds to prepare for his new life. And this is, this is the place where we're at now, where the, the contract has been signed, they're, in, they're engaged, they're betrothed to one another, but the fulfillment of that marriage contract is not there yet. And so we're in this place before Joseph has had a chance to bring Mary home as his legal bride. And so we're in a place that unexpected pregnancies are not supposed to happen. We're in a place now where they've been committed to each other, but they're not yet there. And Jewish law provided that a virgin engaged to be married who becomes pregnant to another man shall be stoned to death by the men of the town. Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 27 makes it very clear that the law of Israel applied to the T means that Mary's sentence now is death. The contract is void. The payment that he gave to his parents was, uh, to her parents, that was now gone. He lost big time in this marriage contract. So legally, he was within his rights to react in that way. He was legally within his rights to take her in front of the Jewish council and say, listen, I signed the contract, I paid the money, but we have not yet become husband and wife, and here she is standing before you, pregnant. What is your verdict? Guilty. She should be stoned. But we reach the first unexpected thing of this story. And it's something that we maybe will miss in our modern society, the thing that we might sort of skip over really quickly. It says, he had then determined in his heart, he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. When we think, well, divorce happens all the time, but when the other option is stoning by death, when that's the true legalness of the law, we can pass over this really quickly and say, Joseph made a very unexpected decision. And perhaps out of kindness or perhaps out of regret, he will do this quietly in order not to shame her, in order not to embarrass her, in order not to bring this shame upon the family and upon Mary. And he can divorce her quietly so no one has to know that this happened because he loves Mary and he doesn't want to see harm come to her. That this is, yes, the law. But Joseph chooses to do something that Mary doesn't deserve. Mary has simply violated the important moral rule that she should not be pregnant when they were married. But he wants to do something different for her. He wants to do something greater. And perhaps this text remind us that things that we want to do loudly should often be done quietly. That the things that we often reach for, the things that we want to blame someone for, or go and yell at them because we're angry, or uh, we want to cause a ruckus, or we want to make someone else pay for these bad decisions, or they've caused harm in our lives. That Joseph seeks another way. 
that it might not be what is required under the law of him, but it is ethically better and morally better. And he says, let's just do this thing quietly. And I want people to know that this wasn't my fault. And I want people to know that there is someone else to blame. And Mary is at fault here. And I have been wronged seriously because I didn't do anything. That's what he could have said. But instead, what he gets in his heart is he said, I want to reach and do something better. I want to find a morally and ethically better way to do this. I want to go above and beyond what the law calls us to. And I want to do this loud thing quietly. Because it's not always about revenge. It's not always about anger. It's not always about carrying bitterness in our heart. Because the harder thing to do in the life of a Christian, the harder thing to do in the life of Christ, the harder thing to do in the world filled with bitterness and revenge and regret and anger is to reach for grace. I'm reminded of the story of Les Miserables in Victor Hugo's great novel. And it circles around the main character, Jean Valjean, who is uh, who's a convict. And he's recently escaped from, or released from prison, and he really wants to find employment. And so to sort of make him a made man, to make him sort of look better in the eyes of society, um, there's a character named Bishop Welcome, Bishop Benvenu, who gives him an invitation to spend the night in his house, in his residence. Except Valjean, being a criminal, does what criminals do, and during the night he steals the bishop's most prized possession, which is um, some silver dishes. And so the next morning the townspeople bring the police to arrest Valjean, and before they can say anything, Bishop warmly greets Valjean and tells him he forgot the other two silver candlesticks that the bishop had given him. Instead of calling out Valjean, he says, actually, you forgot these. When I gave you all that other silver, you forgot to take these. And so the crowd, seeing that the bishop had actually given him permission or thinking that he had given permission, they wander away, the police go, and they go back into the house, and Valjean is overwhelmed with this grace that the bishop had given him. And the bishop tells Valjean to now go and use the silver to become an honest man. You see, Joseph is convinced that the best course of action is to offer grace, not to do the thing that she deserved, not to call her in front of the council, not to say, come here, this is the law, but to offer something better, something that would honor her, something that would bless her, something that she could take and say, now go and bless the world. And see, the thing about Joseph's decision in this moment is he doesn't yet know that this is the Christ. He doesn't yet know what Mary knows about who is growing in her. Joseph makes this decision because he loves God and he loves Mary, and he's convinced that there is a better way to go. There is a better way to do these things, to be called to grace, to live a life more abundant. And so Joseph is poised to do now the 
ethical and moral thing, but God steps into his life and says, that's good, but here's something more that you can do. It's nice that you don't want to stone her. That is a good moral thing to reach for. That you want to do it quietly, that you want to extend grace to her. Thank you for doing that. But now I want you to do one other thing. And so a visitor comes to Joseph in a dream and convinces him to do something different. This angel, this literally the word messenger, a messenger of God comes to Joseph and says, I want you to take Mary as your wife still. I want you to go above and beyond what you think is acceptable. I want you to go past where you think it's ethical and moral, and I want you to do even more. The challenge is to exceed our culture and his cultural norm of standard issue ethics and pursue a course of action that is excessively good or excessively generous. To go above and beyond what we are called to do as humans, just normal human life, to be good people. But as Christians, God steps into our lives. There's an intrusion. And he says, I just don't want you to be good. I want you to be excessively good. I want you to be excessively generous. I want you to outgive the best giver there is. And so we look around and we say, how can I be excessively good? And every time we just lower our standards and say, well, this is what the benchmark is for life. This is what the benchmark is for our world around us. This is what the benchmark is for our community. And I will just take it one step further like Joseph did. And God says, that is not enough. Because my grace is radical. My grace is excessive. My love for you and my generosity goes beyond anything you can possibly imagine. And Joseph wants to protect Mary's reputation. He, he plans to dismiss her. And this was the respectable and upright thing to do. But he is called by God to do something bigger. He's called by God to an even higher form of righteousness. He was called by God to be abundantly righteous. That actually required him to violate his own cultural standards. He was called by God to go beyond his society's script for righteousness in a way that risked bringing shame on himself. That now is an upstanding member of society as a righteous man, as a God-fearing man, as someone who wants to be ethical and do everything correct. He risks bringing shame on himself by marrying a pregnant woman. That goes beyond anything that he could imagine. He wants to settle this quietly. He's pushed it into his mind that we can do this a different way. And God says, you might get dirty in this, but I'm calling you to do something bigger. To be excessive in your goodness. And that's partly what the message of this text brings us. That unexpected things things outside of convention can often be a wonderful sign that God is at work. That at some point in our life, we've come to this place where 
unexpected things happen. There is an intrusion. There is a side quest that we have to go on. A new door opens that we weren't expecting. And we walk right through or we follow the path or we, we see where this leads us. And we don't stop to think, where is God in this? The wonderful sign that God is at work through unexpected things. The child is to be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us, literally, literally God with us. And evidently, when God is with us, God is not with us in some sort of placid, passive, non-disruptive way. God's intrusions cause difficulty in our lives. They cause us anxiety. They cause us to go to a place where we are not comfortable, places that might cause shame in our lives. The angel urged Joseph not to fear, but how could Joseph not fear when his whole world was being rocked by a birth so unexpected and spectacular? Hey, Joseph, by the way, uh, you're going to be shamed by our society, and I'm going to call you to raise the Christ child, but don't be scared in doing that. Every year we hear the story of Jesus' birth, but we don't stop for a second and realize what that means to not fear. That Joseph was put into this huge, unexpected place. And he said, okay, I'll answer the call. God has called me to do something new, and I will look at it and say, all right, what begins here, what God has announced on this night of Jesus' birth is a human being who will somehow show us a different way to be, who will show us exceeding goodness, who will show us exceeding generosity, who will show us exceeding grace in his life. And so too the text calls us to rise and follow God's call. He shows us that he will show up at the worst possible moment. And he will say, this is what I want you to do. And it's going to hurt. And it might bring shame. And you might lose a lot of friends. And you might lose a lot of family in it. And you might lose a lot of sleep in it. And you might lose weight. And you might get sick. But this is what I want you to do. God comes into our life as an intrusion. He doesn't apologize about it. He doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry to bother you. But if you wouldn't mind following me, yeah, you just finish whatever it is that you're doing. That's fine. That's fine. I'll wait. But if you could just follow along with what I've planned for you, whenever you get an opportunity, whenever you get a chance, God comes into our lives and it's an intrusion and it's unexpected and it pushes things out of the way, things that we thought were important, our own morals, our own ethics, our own standards by the world. And God says, no, 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 no. We're not going to do it that way. I've called you to something greater. Rise and follow God's call. And Joseph did not know where the journey would take or the path that God had set before us. And he comes in the line of 
men before him throughout history, and women, by the way. In the Old Testament, in the scriptures, look at the life of Abraham where God stands before him and says, I have a new path for you. I have a new journey. I have a new nation. You will be great among the nations. Look at the stars. These will be your descendants. So leave your home now and follow me. And Abraham looks up and says, who are you again? What is it that you want from me? You want me to leave my home without any way to trust you and follow you down this path when I'm set up a life here on my own? He looks at God and he says, okay, I'll do it. These are why there's a place in history for people of faith. But think about it from this perspective of Joseph. There is nothing so helpless, so dependent, so fragile, so frail as a baby. And when God comes to him through the messenger and says, I want you to take Mary as your wife and then you're going to raise the Messiah, the Christ child, and you're just supposed to have faith in that because here he's come as a baby in an unexpected and fragile way. How am I supposed to trust in this little baby? How am I supposed to uproot my life? How am I supposed to go through shame in my life? And sometimes we Christians overlook what a strange and peculiar thing it is for us to point to a God who comes in the form of an infant. I think a lot of people who are on the outside looking in can accept Jesus eventually and accept an all-powerful God but where they have a problem is in the story of the birth. Because what other religion is crazy enough to make up a story like this? If we wanted to prove God is who he says he is, why don't we take a book from the other ancient Near East versions where gods come out of thunder and lightning or they rise up out of the sea and they live on these big mountains and have control over people all the time or they're giants living in the land. No, 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 no. The God of Israel begins as a baby. And not even a baby born in a palace, not even a royal baby. He's a baby born in a feeding trough among the hay and the donkeys outside, which is partly why he wasn't born in Michigan, right? God in his infinite wisdom said, stay away from Michigan during Christmas. Unto us a child comes, a God who intrudes among us, not as warrior, not as all-powerful Messiah, but as a baby, a small, fragile vulnerable, disruptive, unexpected, threatening baby. And here's the insane part of this story, is all year, 51 weeks of the year, we preach humanity's need for God. But on this one night, it's God's need for humanity to help nurture him and keep him alive, to help cradle him, to help feed him, to help protect him, to help raise him. 
There in the baby, the hopes and fears of all the years are met by a God who meets us where we live, with our pride masquerading as faith, with our false hopes and selfish fears, and claims us at the infantile point where we all begin our meandering life journey. Starting at the beginning, at the source, he confronts our very deepest and darkest fears, recreating our humanity from the womb onward. And so Joseph points to these two things. He points first to this excessive goodness that God calls us to. A goodness that is beyond what we believe is good for society or what we ourselves have decided in our hearts was good. But God also calls Joseph to this, a level of spiritual receptivity. Open your ears, Joseph. Listen for the messages. How scandalous is the love of God who deems to meet us first as a baby? How threatening is this God to my human desire for an aloof, platonic deity who lives in the realms of the abstract, self-contained ideals rather than in the stable out back who is wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger? It's such a profound enactment of grace that we almost missed that we almost don't see because we don't listen, we don't see, we're not called to those things as we should. God does not give us anything that we deserve under the law. God pardons us and blesses us through Jesus Christ. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we see this act of grace every single time. Could there be messages for us if we have faith to listen? Could there be messages? Could there be things that we are missing because we haven't trusted in the unexpected things? Because we haven't seen Jesus in the manger for what it is. Accepting God at our most vulnerable place. Seeing God in human form as a baby, vulnerable. It takes a giant leap of faith. It takes an enormous amount of trust. Could there be messages for us that we're missing that we just have not trusted in God to hear? And if Jesus' mission in Matthew can be said as to be saving his people from their sins, then the significance of his birth, life, death, and resurrection must be said to be the promise of whatever appearance might suggest, that God is not absent from the world, but present among God's people. This Advent is about hope. It's about that thrill of hope. And really, the word for hope through the Old Testament, the word through Scripture, the word that Joseph would have known for hope is the same as trust. And so if we can have a thrill of hope, if we can believe in a God, it means trusting in a God who is there, who is present with his people. 
that God calls us to be receptive to the truth of who he is, that God calls us to have ears to hear, to listen to what those messages from God might be, that what we might be overwhelmed, that we might be planning the perfect Christmas, that we might be on the road to success because we've planned everything out and we have this great deal of faith in God. And God says, this is not what faith looks like. Faith is now trust. Trust me in this form. And if we can't trust this story of vulnerability, if we can't trust this story of unexpected intrusion, if we can't trust the things in front of us, that God is with us through those moments, how do we trust him later on? How do we trust him as a man in ministry? This Advent is about hope and what God with us means that he brings mercy, compassion, peace, and joy instead of contempt, bondage, ridicule, and moralistic superiority. Good news comes in the form of a God who brings grace even in our disgrace. As we prepare ourselves for communion, we'll have an opportunity to respond to this grace, to respond to a Christ who comes not as a warrior, not as someone who is all-powerful to overthrow the government, but as a vulnerable baby. And we want to reflect what it means to be vulnerable and what it means to trust that God is leading us in unexpected ways and trust that unexpected things can take us in the direction of God.